You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 10, where we will look at contemporary controversies about Christ, particularly two controversies, one about Christ as the full revelation of God, and secondly, about Christ's beatific vision. I want to begin with this contemporary thesis that Jesus is only the limited revelation of God. At this point, I really want to help all the students see that this is a dangerous view of Christ. This is really almost kind of a current poison at the heart of Christianity, and it needs a strong antidote. What I want to do in the next few minutes is describe what I consider this false view of Christ as the limited revelation of God, and then see how it fits into what we've talked about in terms of the church's understanding of Christ. Well, building on the work of Karl Rahner, Karl Rahner himself just began to you know, emphasize that the human nature of Christ has to be, since it's almost a kind of the exhaustive character of our study of Christ, and that what defines a human being is this limited, finite character of freedom, and that the finite experience of freedom actually has the capacity for the transcendent. But he emphasized very much that the human nature of Christ has to be finite, and not simply that it's a finite human nature joined to the infinite God, but that really the finite human nature is all we can really talk about because we can't actually have access to or talk about that infinite nature of God. So building on that, we have lots of different contemporary Catholic theologians that emphasize and teach and write books where they speak about this limited revelation of God. And basically what they say is that Jesus was, of course, a human being. Therefore, he was finite and limited, conditioned historically, linguistically, and culturally because that's what it means to be a human being. If Jesus was fully human, then his humanity was also finite, culturally, historically, linguistically conditioned. And ultimately, that because his humanity is thus limited, it can only communicate a limited revelation of God. This, as I said, is, I think, a real poison in contemporary theology and one that we need to examine. Because what it means then, and what it leads into, is a notion that if Jesus is only a limited revelation of God, then there are going to be other revelations of God in other religions. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius even, these other are going to reveal truths about God that might even reveal truths about God that Jesus himself didn't reveal. This is not the Catholic teaching about other religions. The Catholic Church's teaching, as stated in Vatican II, is that Christ is the full revelation of God, the complete revelation of God. There are also truths found in other religions, and we should be in dialogue with those truths and affirm those truths. But nonetheless, that the fullness of truth is given in Christ through his church. And that these other religions, although they have truths, they cannot properly be said to be revelations by God. But as I said, if we begin with the notion that Christ is a limited revelation of God, then of course, we're going to want to look elsewhere to find out more about God. And we're going to lose this fundamental centrality of Christ as the unique mediator of salvation and the full revelation of God. Let me give you some examples about how some contemporary theologians approach this. For instance, a theologian by the name of John McCary. 
John McCary literally will go so far as to speak of Jesus' sinfulness. And he doesn't say that he sinned, say, morally or that he committed a personal sin, but he said he participated in societal sin, structural sin. And so therefore he had the prejudices that were proper to Jews of his day. And so therefore when he spoke to the Syrophoenician woman and he told an analogy when she asked for him to heal her daughter, he said to her, he said that, well, look, is it right to take the bread that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs? Of course, saying that he was the bread come for the children of Israel and that the Gentiles were, in a sense, the dogs, the dogs who were not at the table. So Macari says this is an example of Jesus' sinfulness, that he had a racist understanding of Gentiles. I think this is false for a number of reasons. He's simply saying that the Gentiles are not at the covenant. The Gentiles are not at the covenant table with God yet. Only the Jews are. Only the Jews share in the sacrifices that God has ordained, and therefore only those are the children. The Gentiles have not yet become children of God and children of Abraham. So therefore, it's not racism, it's simply teaching the truth about the reality of the covenant with Israel, the covenant which he himself will extend to include all the Gentiles. Another example, Elizabeth Johnson, who's a theologian, a feminist theologian, she emphasizes that Jesus' maleness means that he is in a full revelation of God. Because God is neither male nor female, since God doesn't have a body, he's neither male nor female, and the church has always taught that, that although we call God Father, we don't think of God as male. Male is something about the human material existence and therefore not proper to God, maleness. But she extends that to mean that therefore since Jesus is male, Jesus cannot be the full revelation of God. Again, Jesus is finite, he can't fully reveal an infinite God. Perhaps the longest of many of these treatments about Jesus' limited revelation of God comes about in Roger Haight in his recent book entitled Jesus, Symbol of God. And in a way, the title says it all. Jesus is only a symbol of God. He's not God incarnate, but he's a symbol of God. And what Roger Haight says, he says that all religious terms, all religious language is really symbolic. It's symbolic about God. It's not metaphysical. It doesn't say who God is or doesn't convey truths about God. It simply talks about how we should understand God symbolically. And so what he says is that the language from Nicaea and Chalcedon was proper to their Greco-Roman context, we now have to come up with new language about God that fits our context. They were willing to believe that God could become incarnate. Modern humans, modern man, according to him, no longer can believe this, so therefore we have to come up with new creeds because the creeds are only symbolic and therefore interchangeable. And what he says is that he literally comes down to what he sees as what's the primary symbolic truth of Nicaea and Chalcedon. It's not that God became incarnate, but according to hate, what he says is this, and I'm going to quote him here. He paraphrases Nicaea and he says this, quote, The meaning of Nicaea is that no less than God was and is present and at work in Jesus. This means that the God encountered as Jesus for our salvation is truly God. And he then continues and he says, this implies a second statement about God. God is imminent in and personally present to human existence. So what does he say then? What the truth that Nicaea that was trying to convey through its symbolic language is simply that God is present in Jesus. This is largely the Enlightenment trend of Christology. We have Jesus be a normal man, a very good man, and then we have God present in him. So therefore, 
We have, as with Haight, Johnson, and McCary, and other liberal theologians along this line, Christianity fits very nicely into the Enlightenment. Christians can continue to speak of Jesus' divinity, but they understand this does not mean that Jesus is actually identified with the second person of the Trinity. Jesus' divinity simply means that God is present in Jesus. But God, of course, can be present in many people. God is present in Mother Teresa. God can be present in a child. God can be present in many people, and God is just uniquely present in Jesus. But this is largely really 18th century deism. 18th century deism held that basically God was so transcendent that he was really removed from the world. Kind of the view that God wound up the clock of the universe and then let it wound down. God created the universe, but then he left the universe on its own. He doesn't interact with the universe or supernaturally intervene in the universe. So he just lets the universe kind of go along its own path, kind of watching it in a deistic fashion. And this is really what we have in many of these views of Christ. It's ultimately deistic. God is not supernaturally active in Christ insofar as the person of the Word has become incarnate, but instead God is simply present in this human being. And so what happens then, God's actions and presence can only be, in a sense, spread out universally, kind of a universal imminence throughout all creation. Any specific way that God would act particularly and decisively in a moment in history in the man Jesus of Nazareth are kind of cut off from the beginning. But then we have to look, okay, how do we evaluate this? But what we see is the exact thing that these theologians deny is exactly what the early creeds affirmed, namely that Jesus is identified as the second person of the Trinity, that the one subject of Jesus, the one person of Jesus is the person of the Word of God, and that that one ontological subject then becomes the one to whom we predicate the actions that are proper to his divinity and the actions proper to his humanity, his human nature. And so, again, what we have then is not really a rethinking of the creeds. What we have is simply trying to accommodate Christian confession, the confession of Christian faith, to the beliefs of our modern age, such that we can still speak of the divinity of Jesus without having to deal with awkward things like saying that Jesus is God. But, of course, when we actually look back at the early creeds, we recall that in many ways the heresies were trying to fit the teachings of the church, the teachings about Christ, into prevailing beliefs of the age, and that the creeds were actually unique in resisting that. We talked about that at length, that many of the prevailing Hellenistic views of the world couldn't see how the transcendent God could be present to material creation. And so many of the heresies would view Christ in, sense, in between the transcendent God and man as kind of Christ as a third figure, neither perfectly God nor perfectly man. And so the creeds actually are really against the thoughts of the age. They go against them. And so again, the creeds today go against the prevailing views of the world, modern views of the world that deny the supernatural, deny the miraculous, deny that God could actually intervene in history. Orthodoxy, just as it always does, goes against the prevailing views of the world, the prevailing views of the age, and confronts the views of the age with a message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So then, how is our understanding of Christology going to help us answer this question? How is it going to help us to see that Jesus must be the full revelation of God? Well, we have to begin with really the cornerstone of the teaching of the creeds, from Nicaea through Chalcedon and forward. And that's basically that 
The second person of the Trinity is the person of Jesus Christ. So that in Jesus Christ, there is only one person. There are not two persons. There is not a divine person and a human person, but there is one divine person, which now has assumed a human nature in Jesus Christ. Because of that, when we look at the human actions of Christ, and we say that those human actions manifest and are joined to the one person of the word. What does this mean in terms of the revelation of God? We have to step back and think about what's the difference between the person and the nature in Christ. Well, nature in a simple way answers the question, what is it? If I look at a dog and I say, what is it? You say, it's a dog, it's a canine. But if I ask the question, who is it? Well, you'd say, well, it's Fido. You might even say, well, it's not really a person. It's only a dog. But a person answers the question, really, who is it? Nature answers the question, what is it? Again, if you're walking down the street and you see a man walking down there, you say, what is it? You say, that's a man. You say, who is it? I say, that's my Uncle Charlie. Who is it, says the person. What is it, defines the nature. Well, in Christ, we have a mystery here because when we say, what is it? What is he? You say that, he has a divine nature and a human nature. He's God and man. So what is it says that he has two natures, divine and human. But if I say, who is it, just as Jesus literally said to Peter, right, who do you say that I am? There's only one answer. You can say, you are both God and man. No, who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So who are you? You are the Son of the living God. You are the Word of God. You are the second person of the Trinity is implicit at least incipient in Peter's confession. So when I say, whom then do I come to know when I come to know Jesus Christ? Whom did the apostles come to know? They came to know the word of God. And so because they come to know the word of God through the human nature of Christ, then the human nature of Christ fully reveals God because the human nature is joined to the person of the word. He is not joined merely to a human person, which would be finite, but to the divine person, which is infinite. So therefore, we actually see that it's necessary doctrinally from the Christian faith and the creeds that Jesus fully reveals God. This was already present. We see this in John, of course, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says back to him in 14.9 of John, says, have you been with me all this time and still you don't understand? You know, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see the person. Through the human nature, we see the person, and to see the person is to see the person of the Son. And the person of the Son fully manifests the Father. So how then do we understand that the relationship between this orthodox understanding of Christ and these liberal views of Christ? Well, specifically, we have to begin by saying orthodox Christology does not affirm the view that the finite Jesus is the infinite God. Obviously, the finite human nature of Jesus is finite. It's not the infinite God. Although that's often what modern liberal theologians will criticize the church for holding, that they confuse the finite and the infinite. Orthodox Christology has always, in fact, maintained a great care in the utter distinction between the finite and the infinite. The creeds are exactly the means for maintaining this utter distinction while holding the two in unity. In fact, it's precisely because God is so infinite, and so his being itself that he can be present fully in the person of Christ, united perfectly to the human nature in Christ. And so what happens then is that if we understand this, we see that the church actually provides us with a philosophical sophistication 
to be able to show the utter distinction between the infinite divine nature and the finite human nature, but to be able to show that that finite human nature now resides in the person of the Word. It subsists in the person of the Word. That the subject, the only person that is in Christ is the person of the Word. So therefore, when the apostles came to know Jesus, they came to know the divine Word of God. When believers come to know Christ through the successors of His apostles, through the church, through the scriptures, through the sacraments, they come to know the person of the Word. Through the church, they come to know Jesus. Through Jesus, Jesus is the person of the Word through His human nature. And therefore, they have the full revelation of God revealed to them. And to deny in any sense that Christ fully reveals God to us really separates us from the 2,000 years of the church's reflection on the person of Christ. The second element I want to look at in a kind of contemporary confusion about Christ is in a way related, but it's a smaller topic. The specific question is, did Christ as man possess the beatific vision? What does that word, the beatific vision, mean? Well, it means that the vision of God beatifies man. What does that mean? Well, it means it brings man to beatitude, to happiness. We see this in the beatitudes that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. They are blessed. They have beatitude pronounced upon them for the pure of heart, because they will see God. They will have a vision of God. They will see God. And when they see God, they will be perfectly blessed, perfectly happy. So what the beatific vision means is that the vision of God is what beatifies man, is what makes man happy. And so the question then is, in what sense does Jesus' human nature possess the vision of God? And what will often happen is, again, liberal theologians will say, Jesus can't have possessed the beatific vision, because the beatific vision is the vision of God. And as the vision of God, it must be utterly transcendent or non-conceptual. And because it's non-conceptual, then in no way can it be said to be present in the human nature of Jesus because human beings and human nature know things through concepts in a conceptual manner. We don't know everything purely and simply in the way that God sees everything in a simple manner. Instead, we know things in distinct manners, through concepts, through different truths, in a discursive manner. So a lot of theologians will say that Jesus didn't have the beatific vision because it wouldn't have fit with his full humanity. Well, in order to answer this, we want to go back and look at the three different levels. Remember, Christ has a human intellect, and his human intellect would operate in a way that would be fully fitting to his human nature, because he has two intellects, a divine and human, two wills, a divine and human. So what kind of knowledge would he possess? Well, he possesses a knowledge, first, would be acquired knowledge. And his acquired knowledge would be the same way that we learn things. We learn things through the world. In the world, we experience things. We reason about those things. We come to concepts. We come to understandings. We learned English or whatever language we learned from our parents speaking it, from our brothers and sisters. In the same way, Jesus would have learned Aramaic because his common mode of speech, but perhaps would have learned some Hebrew prayers and other things from Mary and Joseph, from his mother and his father. So because of that, he would have truly learned that. As a young child and infant, he wouldn't have been speaking Chinese. He learned Aramaic from his parents, so he had acquired knowledge. But this is insufficient because Christ's mission, again, is unique. Christ's personhood is unique. He also had what's known as infused knowledge. His human intellect was infused with particular 
knowledge of persons, places, and events that he had to know in order to live his mission, to accomplish his mission, and to communicate his mission to the world. Everything pertaining to his mission was given to him. He had the perfect knowledge of the natural law, its completion in the new law, the Sermon on the Mount. He knew, of course, what other people were thinking because that was important for his mission. He had to manifest that he was not simply a human being, but that he was God himself incarnate. So because of that, he had all the knowledge he needed to have, all the knowledge that God wanted to give him because he was God. But nonetheless, as divine knowledge, the divine knowledge, which would have been on a divine intellect, isn't the same as his human intellect, or else we would return back to a kind of monophysite view or a monotholite view. The, his human intellect has to operate as a human intellect. And as our human intellect operates by way of concepts, he also had to have concepts that allowed his human intellect to understand the world, to be able to explain what he knew as God in a way that was proper to his human nature. Finally then, Jesus' human nature also did possess the vision of God. There's nothing false about this. There's nothing hard about it. Because what happens is the vision of God is a non-conceptual vision. It's a simple vision of the eternal God. And as a human nature joined to the Word, Jesus Christ would have experienced this. But it does not mean, of course, that if Jesus had the beatific vision, if he had the vision of God, that he would have had, you know, like this kind of false wisdom, that Jesus would have been walking around as the kind of walking encyclopedia. If you'd walked up to him and asked him and said, what's the, you know, formula for the hydrogen bomb? He would have simply written out the diagrams for it. No, Jesus wouldn't have had conceptually all the knowledge that the beatific vision included. From there, he only had the conceptual knowledge on an infused and acquired level, those things that were appropriate to his mission, those things that were necessary for him coming to redeem Israel, to redeem all of God's children, by redeem all the creatures, all human beings that God had made to become God's children. So therefore, even though he had the beatific vision, he still had to have infused vision, which gave him concepts to be able to communicate his vision to the world. So in this sense, there's no psychological problems to affirming that Jesus had the beatific vision. It doesn't make him not like us or totally inhuman. His human intellect would have functioned in a miraculous way, in a perfect way, in a way that's distinct from us, but nonetheless, it would have functioned conceptually, discursively. Both through acquired and infused knowledge, his human intellect would have been perfected. And it also would have had this complete perfection by the enjoyment of the vision of God. And this enjoyment of the vision of God as personally united to the Word. The human nature was united in the Word. So because of that, there's simply the perfection of the human intellect in Christ. And the human intellect will be perfected both when it has the pure vision of God and then that pure vision of God overflows in our current life into a conceptual vision that's appropriate. And in Christ, in his human existence here, needed to have acquired and infused knowledge so that he could communicate with other human beings, so that he could express what he knew by the non-conceptual vision of God. He had to be able to express that in conceptual terms so that his human intellect would be fully engaged in his work and mission and ministry. So therefore, again, there's nothing that harms the full humanity, the full human intellect of Christ to deny this. And ultimately, if we see that Christ came, in a sense, to make Israel a holy people and to be the dwelling of God with people, as we say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that if Christ doesn't have the vision of God, then Christ is not the true temple. 
Christ as the true temple has the full divine presence dwelling in him. And that can only happen if his human nature is perfectly united to the divine in terms of this beatific vision. Only if Christ has the perfect vision of God can he truly be the new temple, the new temple of God, the new tabernacle of God in whom God truly dwells so that he can be the true Davidic king who not only makes the people righteous, but also leads them to dwell perfectly with God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.